You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Senate will convene as a court of impeachment. The chaplain will lead us in prayer. Chief Justice John Roberts presided over the first impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, giving the event the gravitas it required. I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the President's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. But Roberts has decided not to preside over Trump's second impeachment trial, giving an opening for Republicans to question the legitimacy of the trial. Joining me is Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, what does the Constitution say about the Chief Justice presiding over impeachment trials? Well, it says the Chief Justice has to preside over the impeachment trial of a president. What it doesn't say is whether he has to preside over the impeachment trial of a former president. And most constitutional scholars think that probably the answer is no, that the document at least leaves the Chief Justice with the option of not presiding. The reason the Chief Justice presides over the trial of a sitting president is because if the vice president presides, the vice president might have a conflict of interest because they'd be presiding over a trial that could lead to them becoming president. Did Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer ask the Chief Justice to preside and he refused? Do we know what actually happened? That appears to be what happened. John Roberts hasn't said anything. What Chuck Schumer said the other night is that the Chief Justice declined the opportunity to do that. So the presumption is that he was asked to and chose not to. From a Democratic standpoint, there are certainly a lot of advantages to having John Roberts presiding over the trial. So you can see why they would have wanted him to and would have tried to get him to, but apparently he had no interest. Do you have any idea why Roberts hasn't made a public statement about why he is not presiding? It's pretty typical John Roberts. He doesn't make very many public statements. Back during the first impeachment trial a year ago, he completely left it up to Senate leaders to make announcements about what was happening. You know, it's certainly an opportunity where he could have said something, could have explained his reasons for not coming over, could have said, I don't think the Constitution requires me to. But he chose not to, and we're all just left to some degree to speculate about what his reasons were. So at the last Trump impeachment trial, Roberts played a sort of minimalist role. Yeah, very much so. There was very little he said that wasn't suggested to him by the Senate parliamentarian. He kept the trains running on time. At one point, he admonished both sides to be a bit more civil. And probably the most noteworthy thing that he did was to say that he wouldn't break any tie votes. And in that, he referenced previous practice, which he said supported the idea that it was up to the Senate and that his entire role was to just preside and keep the procedure moving, but not to make any substantive decisions. Why has Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy been chosen to preside over Trump's second impeachment trial? Well, he is the the president pro tem of the Senate, taking over for Chuck Grassley, who who held that position while the Republicans were in the majority. Leahy was one of two options for the Senate, the other being Vice President Kamala Harris. Not clear why they went with Leahy. It might seem slightly less political to have a member of the Senate rather than the new vice president who was on the campaign that defeated Donald Trump. And the truth of the matter is, if this trial is anything like the last one, Senator Leahy won't have a whole lot to do 
other than kind of pro forma, keeping the proceeding moving along. He won't have any substantive decisions to make. It seems like the perception of fairness would be better if it weren't a Democratic senator who's spoken against Trump's actions presiding over his impeachment trial. Yeah, I think that's a huge point. You know, in the last two impeachment trials we've had, you have had a chief justice up there lending a sense of gravity and making it seem as though it were at least partially a judicial proceeding. You had William Rehnquist for the impeachment of Bill Clinton and and Roberts last year for Trump's first impeachment. Instead, you're going to have a senator and a member of a party opposing Donald Trump, and it will convey a very different atmosphere, and it certainly gives Republicans who don't want to talk about the substance of the charge against Donald Trump, it gives them another opening to talk about the process and and the claim is just a political exercise. Some Republicans seem to be trying to spin the chief's absence into a decision by the chief that the impeachment of a president who's out of office is unconstitutional. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a leap. It it is probably fair to surmise that the chief thinks that the Constitution doesn't require him to be there for the trial. But that whole separate issue of whether a former president can be put on trial, it's hard to make that leap with just a step by John Roberts. Again, it is a talking point for Republicans. It makes sense that they are trying to cast it that way. But that really is a separate issue. Most constitutional scholars I've talked to say what history we have suggests that a former official can be put on trial and that that makes some sense because otherwise a president nearing the end of his or her term would be able to act with impunity without facing any sorts of consequence if that person could not be put uh, on trial. Let's turn to one of the Supreme Court's actions this week. On Monday, the Supreme Court ordered dismissal of suits over Trump finances. Remind us what those lawsuits are. Yeah, these these were lawsuits saying he he violated the Constitution's emoluments clause, which uh, say that the president can't get any benefits from, one of them says, from foreign governments, and uh, the other says uh, domestic benefits uh, beyond the salary that that he gets. And uh, the focus was on Trump-owned properties like the Trump International Hotel, and these lawsuits claim that... Donald Trump was was benefiting from being president because, uh, say, foreign dignitaries would would come stay at his hotel to curry favor for the new administration. And uh, the allegation was that uh, that gave him a competitive advantage over other hotels in the District of Columbia and and elsewhere. And uh, lower courts let those lawsuits go forward against Donald Trump. Uh, saying, among other things, these hotels in the state of Maryland and the District of Columbia had standing to pursue them. And um, that might have uh, forced Donald Trump to turn over some of his financial information. Well, now that Donald Trump is no longer the president, uh, both sides agreed that these lawsuits were, were now moot and should be dismissed. And the Supreme Court did that. And along the way, it told the lower, it, it set aside federal appeals court rulings that let the the lawsuits go forward. Uh, So we've lost at least some of the precedent that had built up around what those two emoluments clause mean. We have an an acting solicitor general. Why not appoint a U.S. solicitor general at this point? Why appoint an acting solicitor general, if you know? 
there will probably be an appointment of a solicitor general in, in relatively short order, but there is an awful lot of work that needs to be done right away in terms of uh, potentially shifting the government's position in a number of cases. There are some pending Donald Trump appeals, uh, Trump administration appeals that are at the Supreme Court. There are a couple cases that the court has already agreed to hear arguments in. Uh, and there are a number of other issues where the Solicitor General's office will have to make some big decisions going forward about how the uh, what the government's litigating strategy is going to be. So by putting in an acting Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, uh, they now have somebody who can start to make those decisions and uh, help appoint the, the government's uh, legal team in the direction that uh, the president wants. And what happens, suppose, let's just say on some of the immigration cases, the Biden administration has a totally different view from the Trump administration, and they don't want to pursue a case anymore. Do they tell that to the court? How does it work procedurally? It it, it depends a little bit. Um, If the government is pressing an appeal, they always have the power to drop the appeal. they also have the, the administration also has the ability to change the underlying policy. So, for example, there are a couple arguments that the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear later on this term, having to do with uh, money being spent to build the border wall and Donald Trump's policy that requires asylum applicants to stay in Mexico while they're while they are applying. The Biden administration could change the underlying policies there, and then those cases uh, would become. Uh, it, it, either moot or close to moot, and the Supreme Court probably would be inclined just to drop those arguments. So it depends a little bit on exactly what's going on and what the procedural status of the case is. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Store. The conservative legal movement has been united behind shared goals of filling the federal bench with like-minded judges and advocating shared principles grounded in originalism. But the movement appears to be facing a reckoning post-Trump. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Madison Alder. What has been the goal of the conservative legal movement until now? So the conservative legal movement has really united over this idea of uh, confirming federal judges who are originalists, textualists, um, who believe that the, the Constitution uh, should be interpreted as, as the founders understood it, um, that statute should be interpreted based on what it says. Um, and, you know, it's something that has really united conservatives across the spectrum. Uh, now that, you know, Trump is, is out of office, uh, conservatives don't have that to, to necessarily unite them anymore. And it kind of becomes a question of, of what comes next. For, for their movement. Certainly they were very successful with President Trump and Senator Mitch McConnell getting a lot of very conservative judges on the bench at all levels. Now, there's been a problem because some prominent legal conservatives helped Trump try to overturn the election. Tell us about some of some of what was done. So on January 6th, uh, Senators Josh Hawley and, and Ted Cruz, who are, you know, they both had Supreme Court clerkships. Um, they uh, went to Harvard and Yale, respectively. Ted Cruz has argued several times in front of the Supreme Court. They are definitely conservative lawyers through and through. Um, they were part of this movement 
to not certify the electoral college results. And that was something that really Josh Hawley kind of sparked. He was really leading this too. You know, that definitely gave a lot of credence to the arguments that there there was fraud, um, which has, you know, been pretty, these claims have been pretty baseless. Um, and then outside on January 6th at, at the rally where President Trump spoke and, you know, his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani spoke, uh, another conservative lawyer, John Eastman, who's a former professor of Chapman University, uh, he said that there was fraud and that dead people voted and, and really highlighted some of these criticisms too. And we know what happened on January 6th. So the you know mob stormed the Capitol and um, a lot of what they were uh, up in arms about was, was these fraud claims, these, these baseless fraud claims. So it has some conservative lawyers pretty angry that a few of their own were involved in bolstering these kinds of ideas that incited people. And it has some of them even wanting to, to take some kind of action. Before January 6th, a lot of conservative lawyers tried to help President Trump overturn the election results by presenting evidence or a lack of credible evidence that there was fraud. Were some people in the federal society upset about that too or did it take until January 6th for them to be concerned? Well, a lot of the lawyers who were involved in the election uh, lawsuits were were not really leading lights of the conservative legal movement. Um, You know, Rudy Giuliani, for example, is not really seen as being a a leading light of the conservative uh, legal movement. And so there there was already a bit of a distance there. Um, between an organization like the Federal Society and prominent conservative lawyers and those who were involved in, in those lawsuits. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of Federal Society members who were speaking out internally and, and on Twitter against these kinds of, of claims. A few of the people I spoke to said that they would have welcomed a you know, lawsuit, a challenge, had there been fraud uh, and had the courts not struck these claims down. But at the end of the day, they, they did strike them down and, and there wasn't fraud. Um, so it really didn't line up with what conservative lawyers stand for, which is the rule of law. Also, there were 18 Republican state attorneys general who supported one of the lawsuits to overturn the election results. Right. And I, I spoke to one of the uh, attorneys general who was not part of that group, um, David Yost, who's the attorney general of Ohio. And, you know, the way that he saw the events of, of January 6th and the involvement by, by some of these conservative attorneys was, you know, that they've kind of forfeited credibility when they're throwing their support behind these claims. And, um, it, it's definitely showing a, a split between, you know, different types of conservative attorneys, those who, you know, don't believe in, in the way that some, some people conducted themselves and, uh, you know, don't believe in, in these basis claims and those that are willing to support them. Liberals often see the conservative movement as one big movement, but have there been factions within the conservative movement? So I spoke to uh, Professor Stephen Tellis, uh, who's written about conservatives. He wrote a book about those who were never Trump. He also wrote a book about the conservative legal movement. And 
he said that that is a tendency to kind of see the conservative movement from the left as being unified, but they've always had a, a variety of different views. And that perhaps the events, you know, the election fraud claims, the events of January 6th have kind of highlighted that in a way that, that hasn't really been seen before, that there is kind of a fracturing that he also sees happening on the left as, as well. Explain, for those who don't know, explain what the Federalist Society is. So the Federalist Society, uh, you know, it it describes itself as kind of a networking group, a kind of a debate club of sorts for conservative and libertarian lawyers. They hold events, they hold an annual event, they do panels. Really, the backbone of the organization is uh, their groups on college campuses and, you know, on uh, law schools. Uh, it helps get conservative thinking young lawyers together to to hear from different speakers. And one of their policies is they don't comment on political issues. Um, you know, it's on their website. They've reiterated that they don't comment on political issues. So that is what happened in this case as well. They're, they're still not commenting on this, which, you know, some of the lawyers that I spoke to who are a part of the Federalist Society respect and say that, you know, they they may be shouldn't comment on this and they they like that they do that the others say maybe this is the scenario where they they need to weigh in and say something um, especially about john eastman who is a member of one of their groups that uh, plans some of these events and and gets the speakers together you talked to the co-founder of the federalist society what was his reaction so his reaction uh stephen calabrusi is uh, a professor now is a co-founder of the Federal Society, and he has both supported Trump in, in op-eds, and, and he's, you know, recently not supported Trump in, in op-eds. So he's kind of gone back and forth on this over the years. And, uh, you know, he basically, he did not agree with any of these election fraud claims. He said that conservatives have erred in not accepting the results of, of the election, and that support for, from some conservative lawyers of, of this is kind of detrimental. So the Federalist Society helped Trump in forming the list of Supreme Court justices and in judges that he nominated. They were very active in that role, or at least Leonard Leo was. Do any of them feel like even though Trump helped them accomplish this incredible goal of transforming a large part of the judiciary to conservative judges, do any of them feel that their movement was corrupted by Trump? Something that was underscored for me by a few different people I spoke to was that they believe that the way that Trump's own appointees treated these election fraud claims, which was by and large throwing them out, you know, calling them for what they were, uh, rejecting them uh, on the merits, they, you know, threw them out because they were baseless. And, you know, at least one conservative lawyer, sort of libertarian lawyer, Jonathan Adler, who's a professor at Case Western, told me that he thinks that is evidence that the movement wasn't corrupted by Trump, that, uh, you know, these conservative judges, many of whom were part of the Federalist Society, when it came down to it, didn't side with the president. And they said what the law was. And, and it wasn't that there was election fraud. What are the paths for the Federalist Society going forward? So I spoke to a few Federalist Society members for the story, and 
they described a path forward that involves holding some of their own accountable, maybe holding Eastman accountable. And there's, you know, movement. We had a few uh, background sources confirmed that there's a movement to unseat him from this position on one of the practice groups that uh, organizes some of these meetings. You know, an, another conservative lawyer told us that they had sent a letter to leadership uh, asking that he be removed from the approved speakers list. There was another letter uh, asking that he be removed from his practice group role as well. So there is a movement internally to take action, which is pretty significant for conservatives who who kind of reject the left cancel culture. Um, and a few of them have, have been careful to note that they don't agree with cancel culture, but they would like to see them take some kind of action on Eastman. And then, you know, other lawyers describe maybe a path where speakers who are political, like Holly or Cruz, if they're ever to speak at events in the future, wouldn't be highlighted, or maybe the organization wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have them come as, as speakers. And, you know, basically severing those ties between conservative lawyers and and politicians with with a legal background. Um, so those are just a few of the things that, that people talked about. But of course, these are the opinions of just, you know, a, a few conservative lawyers. And it really is going to be up to the, the federal society on, on where this ends up going. That was going to be my next question, because I wondered how much of the Federalist Society feels the way you've been describing some of these conservatives feel and how much of the Federalist Society thinks, you know, everything's fine. Let's just go ahead the way we've been going. Any feel for that? Well, that's one thing. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to look at this is because the, the Federalist Society doesn't take political opinions on things. So in a way, it's an organization made up a lot of its members. And so if it's going to delegate that to its members, its members' opinions on things like this really matter. And, you know, at least with the people that we spoke to, um, there are a lot of people that feel like something does need to happen here or that, you know, maybe there needs to be a different way to handle these types of speakers and and how the organization moves forward after this. But I think ultimately it's it's a little hard to tell exactly what's going to happen in an organization like this because when you're a debate club and you are so focused on, on having a diverse array of perspectives, having decisions ultimately get made is not really one of the elements of, of debate. So it'll be interesting to see if the Federal Society ultimately decides to, to pick a new direction or if they hold to what they've done in the past, which is not saying anything to, to foster the debate culture. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Madison. That's Madison Alder, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.